welcome to a special edition of Seat Yourself. This episode will be a different format than our regular weekly edition, and it will feature a single guest for the entire episode. In this special edition, our host, Dave Turner, will be having a conversation with Nate Mel, founder and owner of Felton Fat, an artisanal dinnerware producer based in Philadelphia. In the conversation, Dave asks Nate about how Felton Fat came into being and what drives the company today and into the future. This episode runs approximately 30 minutes and is sponsored in part by the Edward Donham Company. Everything but the food for nearly 100 years. Now, here's Dave. Hi, we're here in Philadelphia with Nate Mel. Nate is the principal and CEO of Felt and Fat. They make the coolest goddamn ceramics we've seen in quite some time. And we're in the studio, so you're going to hear some noise, and you'll hear a little bit of music. I love music in the studio. It's beautiful. This is a rehab factory uh, building, recycled factory building, if you will. Much, it's very similar to the studios that we have in Baltimore. But I'll let Nate tell you all about it. Nate, tell us the story a little bit of not only this building, but of Felt and Fat and where, it, where it's been, where it is now, and where it's going. It's funny you mentioned this building. Uh, we've been here in, uh, in the Macon Studios, as they call it, uh, for the last three years now. It's our third studio space. And we moved up here uh, because we were looking for expanded space, obviously a good price point. We're up in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia, which in, the, in this area is sort of the uh, epicenter of uh, you know, the opioid crisis. So a lot of drugs up here, a lot of uh, people out of work. Um, so it's a rough area, but it was originally a, an industrial neighborhood. That's why all these old buildings are here. It's built for industry, built for production, and you know, that's a big part of who we want to be and what our story is about, is about you know, making industry uh, organically in the city of Philadelphia, where we, uh, where we live and where I've, I've lived for the majority of my life and where my family's from. It's a great um, city. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it used to be a real you know industrial hub, and uh, and I think there's a lot of great things coming back here now. A lot of amazing makers. Um, and the way we started um, was a it was kind of a pretty circuitous route. Um, I went to fine art school here in Philly at the Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia. Um, I originally went to school uh, to study printmaking because I fancied myself. Uh, <laughs> something of maybe an illustrator or an artist in, in the 2D realm. Um, but while taking classes in printmaking, I, on the side, took a glass blowing class and was so enamored with the process of glass blowing. I just really loved kind of the hands-on feel of it, how immediate it was. Uh, it was like nothing I'd ever done before. Um, I switched my major over to glass and um, really started pursuing that heavily. Um, but then, even while doing that, started playing with uh, wood, started playing with ceramic as well. And I think I really came to realize I was just someone who liked to make things, liked to have my hands in things. And so, uh, what I ended up focusing on a lot was mold making um, while in school. And so, mold making I decided to pursue because it kind of transcends material. You can use mold making to make metal things, wood things, glass things, ceramic things. Um, so, I wanted something versatile like that. So out of school, I got a small studio space, a couple hundred square feet um, in a you know cheap building with no heat. <laughs> and uh, I was working there. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, just have little space heaters and you'd bundle up while you were working there. So I had a studio practice. Um, 
doing more conceptual artwork at the time. Um, I've always loved good design. I've always had a you know had a fascination with it, but never like really pursued a lot of functional work. I, I always made functional work kind of on the side while I was in school. Never thought about it as something to pursue. But if you're if you're a glass blower, you're ma- you make cups all the time, just you know, to warm up to do your your weird art stuff you want to make. So sure. I would do that, and while you know doing art and getting little gigs here and there, I uh, I had a serving job. So I was a server for eight years in Philly. I decided to get into serving because uh, I had a brother-in-law who uh, was a server, made great money doing it. He was in his you know. He was in his 20s when I was a teenager, and he introduced me to the world of, you know, restaurants. My family is very... It's very bad, very bad. But once <laughs> you get involved in the restaurant business, you never leave it. See? No, you're, so yeah, now you're, traps now you're trapped. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting, because I came into hospitality working at a place where I was the youngest server by, like, 20 years. These were all Four Seasons vets who came to work at the steakhouse that I got a job at. And I, from the beginning thought of serving as like a means to an end don't get trapped in it i didn't want to be like these guys they're all you know functional alcoholics and still snorting their all their proceeds away um so i was i was a practical guy you know i had fun i partied but i never went as hard as my coworkers. and so i always saved money and i always uh you know i paid i paid for a lot of my school as i went because i worked part-time all during the school year full-time off and i was just work 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 made my money and I never really thought deeply about the hospitality industry beyond a way to pay rent. I enjoyed serving. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed, you know, the work for the most part. I enjoyed the money because it was great when yeah. you're in your early 20s. But I didn't think of it beyond a means to an end. Um, now, all that changed uh, when I started working for Chef Eli Culp in Philadelphia. So Eli, at the time, had just moved to Philly from New York where he worked at a one Michelin star restaurant in New York. He got picked up by Ellen Yin, who owns Fork Restaurant. It's an institution that's been around for 20 plus years now. And Ellen's an incredibly savvy businesswoman who, once she opened Fork 20 years ago, was doing you know, farm to table. And this was before you know, that was much of a concept. It was like a thing out in California people were doing. And Ellen knew what was up and she kept up with restaurant trends. She used all local artists to designed the restaurant at the time. This, again, was 20 years ago, a different, different time entirely. So Ellen's an incredible woman. I got a job at Fork, uh, and it was I was one of a couple new hires when Eli moved to Philly. And uh, it was between that and working at Morimoto at the time. I was, had offers at both restaurants to be a server. And yeah, Morimoto's been established. It's been around for a long time. I knew I could make good money at a star restaurant, but I really liked Ellen. I really liked what it seemed like they were doing. So when I went to work for Eli, it was the first restaurant I think I worked at where I drank the Kool-Aid and I was, I was in it. Like Eli was an incredibly inspiring chef to work for. He brought in people in his kitchen who were incredibly young, talented people who would work you know, 10, 12 hour days, like five, six, seven days a week because he was working those hours or more. I mean, he was there more than anybody and he taught us and the big the big lesson that I took away from working with him was like if you want to do anything great in life you're gonna to have to put in a ton of hours a ton of unpaid hours and uh, you're gonna to have to look at your industry and look at who don't try to be the best in your neighborhood don't try to be the best in your city 
try to see who's the best in the world, what are they doing, and emulate them and learn from them and maybe try to surpass them. So, you know, this was 2012, 13, I started working there. You know, it was great. I did well there. You know, I made good money. I loved the team there. Eli brought on people like Alex Bois, who's an incredible baker with his own bakery now. You know, Sam Kincaid and John Nodler, who have, you know, their restaurant Cadence, which is great learning ground. Great restaurant. So he was bringing on people who all went on to do great things. Yep. Um, and they were all getting paid nothing and just grinding away for years. But I worked there for a year and change. Drank the Kool-Aid. I had a great relationship with the chef and with Ellen because I was a, you know, I was a good salesman. I was a good server and they liked me and I got along well with them. And then they needed plates. Eli approached me one day and I was, I was starting to focus more on ceramics at that point. I worked at a place called the Clay Studio in Old City, which is a few blocks from Fort. It's a community access uh, ceramic studio. And I was working there doing a thing called the Work Exchange Program, where you work there one day a week in exchange for use of the facilities. So I was doing that. I was starting to get into um, slip casting more, which is like mold making in ceramics. Um, I was starting to do that a lot more. Eli knew that I did ceramics. And so he approached me one day after I'd been working there for a little over a year. And he was like, hey, you know, we're planning on opening this new restaurant in about, you know, in the next year or so. And, you know, the concept's still kind of in the works, but I really want really custom-made ceramics. I want really cool plates. I've got some ideas. I want to kick ideas around with you. He's like, is that something you can do? Knowing the great advice my father gave me when I was young, which was, uh, if you want to learn how to do something, find someone to pay you to figure it out. Had that in mind, and I was like, yeah, I could, I could definitely do that. And I'd sure. never made a plate in my life, but, you know, here we go. Good opportunity to learn and have someone pay me to do it. We understand that ready, fire, aim approach. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> so... Luckily, thankfully, I had, over, I had about a year to work on it. So wow. initially, I did. I just kind of dug into it. I made a lot of drawings, but I didn't have a lot of experience uh, on the wheel, like throwing, which is kind of the prototyping phase if you're going to do slip casting. Sure. And so I brought on an acquaintance of mine who, um, uh, you know, had more kind of time at the wheel, experience throwing, and he. Uh, you know, worked with me on this first project and, you know, we worked together uh, on the initial, what would be the plates for High Street on Market. You know, we were very fortunate in that when High Street opened in their first year, they got listed top 10 best new restaurants in, uh, in uh, Bon Appetit. They got you know, listed top 10 best new chefs by Food and Wine. Eli, um, aside from being a great chef, was a really smart and savvy businessman and networker. He knew Dana Cowan at Food and Wine. He knew the staff at Bonap. He knew when he got, you know, awards, things like that. He sent up, you know, people with gifts to the offices, stuff like that. And he was good to me. They didn't pay us much for that first run because I didn't know anything about pricing. They paid us fine. He introduced me to a lot of people. And that was like how he paid me is like through a lot of influence. He introduced me to Dana Cowan. He introduced me to people in the industry. He also gave you a window, a long window, to make the product, too, yeah. and to learn and go slowly and not have to rush and be pressured. Exactly. And, like, to be honest, we didn't really know what we were doing when we started out. And, like, this, that first round of plates, the first round of plates... Shh, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, they came out uh, purple when they were supposed to be slate, black, gray. So, yeah, little things like that. Um, so this was five years ago, uh, we uh, we grew from there. It took time and it took hours and hours and hours and hours of unpaid work. We didn't pay ourselves for the first year and a half. 
we just worked part-time when I wasn't serving. I, I served at High Street on Market. It was a great opportunity to sell, <laughs> sell plates, you know? Sure. You'd see people all the time flipping the plates over, seeing where they came from. And if I saw it happen, I could walk over the table and be like, oh, well, you like those plates, you know? Here's our card, our website, you know? Yep. So I made, a lot of, I made some sales that way. And so, and I got to see people use the product and see what, what was working about it, what wasn't working about it. And that first plate design had some good features, but it had some issues too, um, you know, and we made changes based on that. And so as we grew, we had more chefs start to approach us. Uh, as anybody in the industry knows, as soon, if you know one chef, you're one degree of separation from every other chef in your city, and right. maybe two degrees from any other chef in the country. Very close community. Yeah. So. I had worked in restaurants for eight years and I worked a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, I knew a lot of chefs. So one day, you know, the next chef we worked with was Nick Elmy, who was, you know, I had never heard of him, but he had just won Top Chef and watched Top Chef. But I had worked with his sous chef and Ed Conrad years ago at another restaurant. And so he reached out to me. We ended up doing a bunch of plates for Laurel, which again, they got all these accolades. So we were we were a hot ticket for a minute. Like, you know, people assumed we knew what we were doing. There so you we're go. working with all these top chefs in Philly. Now you got to perform. And now we got to perform. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, we, we bootstrapped and we worked and we, we at one point did a Kickstarter that helped us, you know, start paying ourselves and buy, wow. buy a bigger kiln. And, you know, just one day at a time, work, grind, work, work, work. And, you know, now we have a catalog of a, little over 30 designs about um, about a 16 standard colorways and aside from all the standard work we do we're constantly doing custom work doing uh, new ideas new designs we want to come out with and, and how long ago was that first order shipped that first order is about five years ago now five years a little ago. over five now you're years. on your third studio on our third studio, the first studio was just the space I happened. It was a 300 square foot space. You're be, you being the, kind by calling it a studio. Yeah, it was something. Okay. It was, uh, it was we couldn't fit the kiln in there. So we got sure. a kiln uh, that we put in another guy's space across the street. And so we had to walk all the plateware over across the street to, you know, we were very careful not to drop the plates as we <laughs> walked sure. across yeah, the street. You don't want to break any of them. You know, one day at a time. And this last year was our... You know, this last year we onboarded with M. Tucker, um, who, you know, Morgan and her team, Sarah Bulmer, Andrew Barras, um, they really connected us with the industry in a way we had never known before. As a reminder, this special edition of Tabletop Journal's Suit Yourself podcast is brought to you in part by the Edward Don and Company. Everything but the food for nearly 100 years. And don't forget, the 2019 Spring Tabletop Advisor is available now from your local Edward Don and Company salesperson, or you can download it at www.don.com. Now, back to the podcast. But why do you think that people these days want that? They want to know where the products come from. They want to know who the makers are and how the products are made. Why do you think that is um, that that type of approach to product selection, even restaurants, even chefs? Why is that so important to people these days? I think at the end of the day, the world we live in currently is so digital and so disconnected. Um, we're like more connected than ever, obviously, with the internet. But there's so much disconnection between 
how things are made, where things come from. Increasingly, people live in cities. Increasingly, it's so easy to get anything you want. You know, you don't even have to leave your house and get, you know, anything you want, food-wise, uh, product-wise. Um, that there's a fascination with artisanal products, whether it's um, you know, as we said, food, uh, chefs, uh, product. People want to see themselves in that place, in that role as well. You know, people want to see the hand making the plate, like literally see a video of you know a plate being made or a bowl being made, and they want to own that plate. They want to like, they want to own that story and that lifestyle. You know, a lot of people. In home goods products, whether it be you know, plates or anything else, who are really successful um, are selling. It's a lifestyle you're selling. You know, it's an idea of a different kind of time. You know, they like they want to see you know a guy in a barn in Vermont hunched over a potter's wheel touching the clay, and uh, those are the guys who like. Or in, in Philadelphia. Or in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's. For me, it's like I like I really like honesty in in process and in product. I don't try to make work that looks like it was thrown on the wheel. Sometimes you see products coming out from you know, so let's say some unnamed <laughs> tableware companies that you know have these like lines in them that are like throwing lines that you see on like the the face of a plate, and those are like you know those are a remnant of a process of the hand, and you see companies who are fully automated machine companies like pressing plates and things like that with these like specific like hand marks or they're glazed in such a way that makes it look like it was dipped by a person's sure. hand and it was done by a machine and like to me it's like I, I don't want to make a product that is, is, is trying to be something it's not yeah. you know I think people <clears throat> generally want to connect mm -hmm. with the products that they buy or that they use or that the food that they eat they want to have some sort of emotional and spiritual connection where is felt and fat now T tell us where where you are in the journey now mm. well i keep saying <laughs> i keep saying to people we're at a very interesting time it's always um, interesting when you're an entrepreneur yeah yeah well there's a big jump from small to medium even so we've you know we last year produced about fifteen thousand pieces which to me seems enormous but in the tableware industry is you know, not even a speck on the <laughs> on the map. I mean, if you look at a company like um, Homer Laughlin, which is a great American company, um, at their height they're making 10 million pieces a year. Now they make about 4 million, from my understanding. So just to give you a sense of scale as to where we're at, sure. 15,000 last year. Now, currently, up until this year, we've uh, slipcasted everything. Slipcasting is a great mm -hmm. process. Um, used in industry for a lot, every, almost everybody slipcasts some, some percentage sure. of their catalog. Yep. Certainly not the most efficient way to make things. We are at a point now where we're changing up a lot of our processes in order to scale. So we've been doing a lot of R&D, we've been talking to a lot of wonderful people, very generous people, some of the engineers actually at Homer mm -hmm. Laughlin, some engineers over at Heath Ceramics, some uh, engineers over, uh, over the pond in England at some of the uh, some of the Stoke-on-Trent factories. Sure. Um, we've made friends in the industry with people who are very generous with their time and uh, given us a lot of great info on like, what machines should we be using, what uh, practices should we be using. So we're at a, process, a point now where we're making changes to our process. Now that said, are we ever gonna be a you know, four million a year company, a 10 million a year company? We don't intend to. 
there's a line in my mind of where we want to stay in the handmade. So you can always remain connected to your customer. Yeah. We want to stay connected to the customer. We want to stay connected to the process, too. The Good point. One of our greatest strengths to the company is that we're small. We're able to develop new product, put custom pieces on the market for small orders. You know, you have companies who, you know, their minimum order is 500, 1,000 pieces if you want to do something in any way custom. We want to be able to offer, you know, and continue to offer great innovative product where we're not entirely thinking about the bottom line. You know, we're an artistic company. I would have, if I wanted to do this just to make money, I would have, you know, gotten into investment banking or something like that. You know, I do this because I have a passion for art and design. I would like to make some money too. That'd be great. <laughs> well, making profit is, is uh, we think, is a great way to do business because it allows you to continue to do what you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you don't make profit at some point, you can't keep that, uh, that process going. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a trust fund to fall back on. There you so, go. Uh, there you more go. fortunately, maybe. <laughs> no, but the products here are fantastic. It seems like uh, uh, there's a lot of you in each of the products that I've seen so far this morning and a lot of uh, the company's persona. Um, the culture of your company. Uh, tell us a little bit about the culture of, of Felt and Fat. Yeah, culture is such an important part of any company. And I suspect it's changing all the time. All, all the time, yeah. We have a company that, you know, when we started out, it was myself and um, one other guy. We, neither of us had ever managed anybody before. Neither of us had ever, you know, thought of ourselves as, business owners or uh, leaders of any kind of way. We were both a couple of artists who just wanted to make cool work for people and, and collaborate. It took us some time and there were growing pains. You know, in our first few years, we brought people on who were, very, who were great and talented, but like it didn't have the right fit. And we weren't hiring so much for the right reasons or for the right things in, in the people. It's something great I learned from uh, listening to an interview with a CEO of Zappos, actually, who um, said, you know, skill is something you can teach, but, uh, you know, you have to hire for culture. You have to, you know, you never want to hire someone who maybe has the exact skills you need, but it's like a little off, you know, when it comes to connecting with the other people you work with um, and fitting in with the team as a whole. And, you know, you, you learn that lesson one way or another. Now we have a team that uh, we've built over the last couple of years. I have myself, I have four business partners. Um, I'm the main operating partner. We have four partners who do various things in the background. Uh, we're great. We all get yep. along swimmingly. And then I have a team currently of five full-time people, our production manager. Yeah, Mark, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. Coming in here this morning, I felt two things. Certainly a lot of passion for the product and the process, as you say, but also a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And that's good. And it's a quiet energy, I would say. It yeah. isn't, this isn't a nervous factory where people running around or whatever, but it's, it's a production process that people are paying attention to detail mm-hmm. and doing it all pretty much by hand at this point. Yeah. I mean, with my... Even com- working the machines by hand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this company, one of my main goals for this, I mean, if I wanted to just make great product and just make well-designed product, I'd buy the you know, great machines who can sure, work. Sure. Uh, the people in this studio, you know, are all here because they want to work with their hands. They want to, they have a, 
they strive for excellence mm -hmm. in design, in product. You know, we're trying to put out something we can all be really proud of. As such, you know, we, as best we can, do well by our by our people. We pay them as well as we can. We we're, work, we're always working to increase pay for our employees, increase benefits for our employees. Um, we're working to, uh, when we don't have the money to give, you know, the tangible benefits of, you know, uh, of health insurance, things like that, we find ways to, you know, bring benefits to their lives. We have a skill training for non, you know, uh, non-production skills we every month have a have a free time day where we just make product together we bring in outside artists to like do a training on some ceramic technique a little different perspective yeah yeah we want i want everybody here to be able to make their own you know product their own like art on the side and uh be passionate about that as well and be able to express their creativity where where do you see <clears throat> talk about the future just a little bit where do you see the future of not only felt and fat, but also the role of products like you're producing here and their role in the dining, guest dining experience in a restaurant. Where do you see that all going? You have these different players. You have the real big guys, <laughs> you know, and then you have the real small guys. Um, and we're, we're, we're not the smallest on the market. We're very small, but, you know, you have like the one guy sure. in, a, in a closet, you know, mm -hmm. throwing plates for a cool restaurant. Where we want to be um, in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, we want to be a mid-sized, mid small to mid-sized company who is known for producing excellent work, keeping on the cutting edge of design, bringing in, you know, I do all the design currently, but we want to continue to work with and bring in young designers, keep up with what's, what's new in tableware. We never want ourselves to be overly large as far as like staffing yep. and output. We want to like produce a premium quality product. Product. We don't want to work with everyone. We want to work with the right people. Got to um, be a good fit there too. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, you have to change. You have to, you have to adapt because you're never going to be that original, you know, and people are going to take your ideas. Uh, and that's just, how it is you know i saw our mug and one of our trays at target last year oh wow like right spot on Ooh. and yeah unfortunately that is what it is i can't fight target right. so what i have to do is make new product um i have to make new designs we have to make new things um there will always be a market for the original too thankfully the people who shop at target generally aren't buying our stuff anyways sure i could see partnering with a larger company one day to uh, produce kind of our uh, our legacy designs mm -hmm. so that we can continue to focus on new design. That's an option. It's not necessarily what we're going to do, but there's, there's, there's a lot of ways we could go. If I'm a restaurateur and I want to find out more about Felton Fat or I want to perhaps talk to you about creating some special products for us, where should I go? How should I get, how should I find out more information? Sure, well, you can just call me. <laughs> um, well, really, our website is feltandfat.com, um, where you can see um, a lot of our standard products that we do. We sell direct consumer as well on there. Our full catalog can be seen uh, through sending us an email, either info at feltandfat.com, which still goes directly to me, um, or nate at feltandfat.com, which also goes to me, obviously. Yeah, and we can, you can also, uh, of course, reach out to M. Tucker, who's our exclusive distributor. Um, and they'll have all of our catalog and all of our information as well. They do a great job. Nate, it's been fantastic talking with you this morning. Thanks for the energy. Thanks for the passion. 
Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, dude. We would like to thank Felton Fat founder Nate Mel for sitting with us and giving us insight into his upstart Philadelphia-based dinnerware company. And we especially want to thank you for joining us for the special edition of our Seat Yourself podcast. You can find all the episodes of Seat Yourself at seatyourselfpodcast.com. And finally, we want to thank the Edward Donnan Company for sponsoring in part the special edition of Seat Yourself. Always remember, hashtag Tabletop Matters.